Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. So today I have Toby Wilde, who is the founder of Aparo, joining us for the Focus on Why podcast. Good afternoon, Amy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm delighted to have you on the show because there is so much that you are going to share with us. That I, I had a little chat with you earlier and I know what it is you do and it's very exciting stuff. And I just can't wait for you, who is passionate about all of this, to share that with our audience. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Brilliant. So, Toby, what is it you do at Aparo? Uh, so, I'm the founder of Aparo. Um, Aparo is um, the accumulation or the end dream of what I've been working on, I suppose, for most of my life and career so far. Um, Aparo is my vision of where we're moving towards in terms of real estate of the future. Um, in my opinion, the days of the SME developer or investor are, are really numbered. Um, it's become so competitive, hyper-competitive out there now to find a decent deal which stacks and is sensible and isn't just a you know like rolling the dice at the casino. I think there's going to be the amount of the importance of data is going to come even more, um, even more and more over the next over the next decade. And I think you know, given the flow of institutional money into real estate of all asset classes now, I mean, it used to be considered an alternative asset class, but I wonder how long you're going to be able to give, give it that moniker. I mean, it, we all know it's the world's largest asset class anyway, but given you've got the likes of Nationwide Building Society doing their own in-house developments these days, and you've got you know, legal in general doing their own stuff, um, um, yeah, my my. My thoughts are we're moving much more towards a centralised real estate um, atmosphere um, going forward. So apparently sort of the accumulation of my vision of it becoming a lot more fund-focused or centralised investment house-focused and also that the property data and technology and algorithms to do forward-looking capital appreciation, estimate market demands and actually building housing that is appropriate for the demand in the areas is going to become more and more prevalent as, as we go forward. And why is it important for you to be working in data and algorithms right now? Uh, it came about completely by accident, actually. Um, I, uh, I, 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 my family have a real estate business, um, been going on a few generations. And um, by the time I'd sold my first business, I, 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 I was got some, me and my father went out and raised some money together to do developments. And uh, we just couldn't find any deals, if I'm honest with you. Um, it was 2017. Um, and the you know we had a real issue with land prices at the time where land prices were con- continuing to go up, but house prices were already contracting. Um, and you know post Brexit, and we couldn't really work this out. Um, I spent all of my life researching real estate deals that never happened, uh, which is frustrating because you know we're not we're not greedy people, but we like to be able to make a profit and not be in the, the risk of, of, of you know, a market downturn wiping us out, and um, which is what some people obviously a, a lot more comfortable with doing that approach uh so i basically at the same time a, a guy came to me and said look have you ever thought given your agency background about the idea of having a, a, a like a property passport or a full service history for your house like when you sell a used car you get a full service history 
Um, so we started talking about the kind of research that we were doing for, due, for our due diligence and developments at the time and um, bolting the ideas together to effectively to be a more enhanced due diligence and research platform so you could find out everything you needed to know about every property in the UK instantly in one place for the first time. Um, so that was Sprift. It's uh, still going. It's the UK's largest centralized data platform, property data platform by paid users. Uh, is my understanding anyway. It still is. Um, but it's very similar to Land Insight, but it's more of a more of a mass market product. So it's used by estate agents, solicitors, homeowners, investors, um, and it's priced accordingly. So the prop tech is important, and and I think having data and algorithms and the systems. I think systems nowadays is is all about efficiency in business. Is that important to you? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Like I said, in 2017, all I did was research properties. And back then, it was taking me seven to 10 days to appraise a new build development site, by which time they'd have a plethora of bids or a dozen bids on it. Uh, ridiculous, some of them. Uh, like I said, it was interesting when I first started building the algorithm to flag financially stressed and distressed real estate assets is because we went back and I started to look at the assets, which I turned down. And a lot of the developers who'd got them were in trouble or, or went to the wall eventually. Um, but it's, I think the reason I got into PropTech is, is out of pure frustration. You know, I'm doing all this due diligence and all this research and I'm spending my whole life doing it. And, and it's not like it was before, you know, it's, real estate isn't the way it was when, you know, my, when my dad was doing it, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, where you knew every local estate agent and they knew you and they knew if you said something, your word was your bond and you do the deal, they price things realistically and you bought them accordingly, you know, there's I, I, people are probably bored about me hearing telling them this story but my, my dad went to an auction in in the 80s when there were 70 lots and six men in the room or six people in the room i should say and um, every single lot got bought um you know the, you go to an auction now and you have people clapping for every bid it's come almost farcical in, in some regards the amount of people you were up against um so there had to be a way of doing this this faster this due diligence this research and because nobody had they had done it at that time, you know, talking 2016, 2017, you know, PropTech back then was still, um, you know, still in its sort of second variant, really. Um, you're just moving into PropTech 3.0, um, which, you know, property data platforms, I think, was probably one of the biggest sections of the third variation of PropTech. Um, but up until that time, PropTech was considered RightMove and Zoopla and um, CRM software for managing your portfolios for, for landlords and for estate agents. So it was... Um, Something had to change, um, but it was you know it was a hard few years. It took us took us I think two three years to get a minimum product out there. Um, by the time we actually launched, uh, it took us two years. Sorry, by the time we actually launched an MVP of Sprift, and um, and you know, the user take up wasn't as fast as you'd hoped. You're there telling people for twenty quid a month you can save hours of your time, and people weren't willing to pay it initially. It's, you have to do, unfortunately you have to be a sort of sea of change, which is you know, why it's so important for any startup to be well capitalized is so that you can continue to bang down the doors of people, um, you know, cash flowing yourself until eventually you get that hockey stick where people go, oh, yeah, I understand now why property data and prop tech is important. But getting people to adjust to that city of change, especially back then in the very, very early days, um, estate agents, was tough. But now I'm proud to say, from my understanding, they're, they're some of the biggest users. And why are startups so important for you? um so important to me uh or, or I, why do you enjoy startups I, I don't know if enjoy is the right word <laughs> um, uh, i um I, I i think i'm basically unemployable i think that's most of the problem um i've got severe dyslexia and i'm, I'm 
you know, definitely I've got uh, ADHD, a lot of ADHD traits, uh, which make it very, very difficult for, for, to, for me to be told what to do. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't respond well to people trying to give me orders. Um, so I'm just pretty much unemployable, I think. So, um, I mean, I, I worked in one of the London corporates after my, my second or third ever job was at Kinley, Falkart and Hayward to a decent London agent. Um, I worked on the residential side and, um, I did really well. I was in, I was in really high, I was in a high percentage of their, their sales force. I think it was top two percent during my whole time there, um, and I enjoyed my my month time there, and I enjoyed the money I made. But for you know, the only reason they weren't sacking me every week was because I was just because I was you know, achieving high amount of sales. Um, but it's just you know, it, it's quite hard for someone with my character traits to 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 work for anybody else because you know even at the age of nineteen, I thought I knew it all. Um, I certainly thought I could figure out a better way of doing things. Um, so I think I, I have to, I have to be involved in either startups or running my own business because it's, it's the best opportunity I have to, to enjoy myself principally because um, I do enjoy a challenge. And what really motivates me is actually growing companies and growing ideas and coming up with new ideas and trying to see them through to execution. I mean, I think, I think for me, the motivation is not so much about money. You know, I've never made an incredible amount of money throughout my career. I've, I've done pretty well for myself. But um, it's it's mostly been about driving something and growing something. And when things stop growing um, or I don't see a, few, a purpose in me doing it anymore, then that's when I'm, I'm bored and I'm on to the next thing. So being aligned with your values and your and your needs in terms of meeting them from a creative perspective is really important in your work. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, my first ever business I set up uh, with a couple of my old friends was a boutique estate agent, which um, I've got to stop saying boutique. It's just another way of saying small. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it was a small estate agency chain. Uh, we had two branches, one in Oxford and one in London. That did pretty well. I had a couple hundred properties under management within six months. Um, so it grew really fast its first year. Then the second and third year, uh, it was all downhill from there. We realized we grew so fast because the properties we took on are the ones that no other agent would touch because the landlords had such bad reputations, um, you know, sort of Peter Rackman-esque style properties where, you know, you take them on, they look in livable decorative order, you know, they'd be sort of, they'd be safe, let's put it that way. You wouldn't be looking at like rising damp and things like that. But, um, you know, the boiler would go and you'd get landlords who didn't want to change them for three months. And that just didn't sit well with me. Um, so I remember on one day we returned 70 properties to one landlord alone just because he owed us so much money in maintenance that we refused to let our tenants stay in those conditions, such as you know, leaky ceilings or, you know, boilers breaking down. And, you know, we'd pay them off our own back and then try and get the money back. And it just never happened. So um, so I, I, I exited that um, stupidly sold out to one of my partners rather than the two I had two national chains who wanted to buy it um including the biggest estate agency chain in the uk one of their brands and stupidly didn't sell it to them and i think that teaches you a lesson about you know friends in business it can be difficult sometimes absolutely and what, what are the lessons have you learned so far in in, in property uh the lessons i've learned so far it's not easy uh, it's, it's, um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's ever, it's ever going to be as easy as it once was, you know, the days of a third, a third, a third are long gone. Um, I think it's, it's, uh, pretty tough out there cause it's unregulated still to a degree. And I know people will be very anti me saying this, but given how many pump and dump investment schemes are out there and things like that, 
um, or just even you know peer to peer. I mean, they're calling peer to peer the next PPI at the moment. Um, and constantly, I'm seeing so many of these. I've got three companies I've been charting lately, which have just recently gone into administration. And I always, you always have your doubts about a lot of these operators, but now the administrators are actively calling each one of them a Ponzi scheme or something of that of that ilk. So I think um, I think just be careful. There's a lot of sharks out there, and a lot of people who, um, if you don't have feed sheets with them or um, or partnership arrangements, I think that's the most important thing. Um, you have to now in real estate have a good legal grounding, knowledge of legal legal um, framework in terms of having contracts and stuff like that out because not everybody is as honorable and not everybody else wants to be here in 30 years. They just want to get their Ferrari and get their you know flashed lifestyle um, for and live it for a year and then they don't really care. Maybe they're naive enough. They think it's, it will last forever. Um, but I think, I think it's, yeah, be careful who you do business with. Um, always have contracts in place and don't rush um you know it's you know don't don't trust don't trust um don't always automatically trust the valuation an estate agent gives you there's some especially in some development agents out there i see the prices they put on things you're just like in what world <laughs> like it's um yeah but no, I, think, I think that's yeah i think that's great i mean in terms of not I spoke with Helen Chorley about this a bit, the difference between being a hare and a tortoise. And, you know, I even did a podcast on it a while ago. It's so important not to rush into things and to really do your due diligence. 100%. Yeah, 100%. It's tough out there. That's that's it. That's all I can say. And it's because too many people are doing it. And I think that's the portrayal in media of what this was. And also the antiquated view that is still the bull rush of the nine of the early noughties, you know, 2000 to 2007, you could invest in anything and you'd make a lot of money. So everybody was just like, yeah, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll make loads of money. And then, um, you know, it's, it, it was a, artificially uh, inflated the market due to capital appreciation or the rest of it. But, but if you look at that now, those days are gone now. So you can't just rely on the market saving you anymore. I mean, there's, I, I mentioned earlier about new build sites I was looking at in 2016, 17. And the reason people were buying them at those prices is now they've all been finished and built out. You know, do, do you know the national average of what um, a new build premium is at the moment? I don't know. Okay, well, historically, it used to be it used to factor in a 10% new build premium. In some areas, more desirable yeah. areas, you could possibly do up to 15, 15%. But, you know, we, we do 10 to 12%. We factor in generally as a rule of thumb. 12% is the bonus. 10% is what you'd expect. So as as of the beginning of 2020, the new build premium was was about 29%. Um, so if you compare new build to existing stock in an area, you're talking a 29% premium, which is ridiculous. You know, help to buy, prop that up to a degree, but you can't, you can't, you know, it's, it just doesn't make sense to anybody. Well, it certainly doesn't make sense to me how these things can work like that. So, yeah, I think there has to be a lot of caution um, and just know know your data, know what's going on in the market, and don't rely on the old adage of if you build it, they will come. You know, there's no point building 22 bed flats in an area because you can get more money on the GDV when they're going to take nine months to sell and your fall through level is going to be really high. You might as well take 10% knock on the GDV and build the three bed houses and actually build housing stock that people need and require. Um, so that's something I'm quite passionate about at the moment is actually trying to. You know, we do have an affordability crisis in the UK with, with housing and we definitely have a social housing um, crisis. So that's something I'm, I'm really looking at at the moment in terms of not just building units that people need, um, but also I'm trying to move into the social housing space at the moment, doing social housing developments as well. 
And, and what would that actually look like for you to to feel that you've got a success in working in that area? Uh, well, I think for me, because we've because uh, we do have a lot of um, special education needs or SENs uh, in our in our family, and my father um, when he retired, so, um, well before he retired, but uh, he was involved in a charity called Ruskin Mill, which is for kids with learning difficulties. Um, but also as a homeless people, victims of survivors of domestic abuse and people like that, who, you know, really are left behind by society and don't have many options at the moment. And that's why you see a lot of displaced families, you know, six of them living in one, you know, B&B room and things like this. And the government, thank God, are they're starting to actually step up and take ownership of this problem. Um, so that's, I think there's a lot of incentives out there now to build social housing. Uh, because it's too often people have been left behind or you get areas you know london's obviously the worst for it you get areas in london like over the river from me in Vauxhall, you've got apartments or you know penthouses which are going for like 30 40 million in an area where you're actually like do you know what Vauxhall isn't like a, you know isn't a mayfair isn't the westminster you shouldn't really be building that kind of housing stock there you should be building housing stock that actually people need i mean in the dream world for me i'd go back to building things like we had in the um you remember the 1960s and 70s when you had the two 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 story maisonette social mm. housing units so you'd have like four 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 basically terraced houses stacked one upon the other in london then they'd have communal gardens problem why these places never really worked is because they always ran out of money before they got to the social elements of it so you didn't get you'd be lucky to get a pub downstairs a rough pub if you were lucky like my my old local on the rileys the rileys on the king's road when i was younger but um but the in reality, you know, that's where they ran our money. So you didn't get the social elements of it. So they would get a bad reputation because of negative, um, you know, or antisocial behavior that happened within the developments. But it'd be nice to have those kind of things going back where actually they were made more like a premium development where you had a porter, you had the key fobs to get in and out of them. And you had, you know, that social element of it. So communal rooms, which you could hire and, you know, garden spaces and things like that. I think, I think that would be, a, yeah, I think, I think that'd be a really nice system for us to go back to. Is that something you're going to sort of pioneer using prop tech as well? Well, at the moment, um, in terms of social housing, we're more looking at the most in need in society. So we're looking at those, um, like I said, the SENs and the victims, survivors of domestic abuse and the ex-forces and the ex-homeless and stuff like that. The most in need within our society is where we're looking at the moment um, at a potential strategy within that. But our prop tech mostly is actually, um, you know, there's always a demand for social housing. So as long as you near build it near, near a metropolitan area, then you're you're going to fill those houses. There's so much pent up demand. You know the waiting list for council houses is, is is ridiculous sometimes in some in certain areas. But what our prop tech really does is it, it flags financially stressed assets, then also looks for the best investment areas of the UK. It's just about doing enhanced due diligence faster and looking for those opportunities faster. Um, but I think some people think, oh, that means you're going to get a bargain because you're going to you're looking at stressed assets, you're going to get them below market value. But in reality, it's it's not so much about that. It's about finding the right opportunities, not exactly the best, the cheapest ones. You know, you can buy anything cheap if you want, but the question is, do you want it? Like, <laughs> so for us, we we quite we we partner with a lot of people doing that kind of stuff. I think what I'm also hearing is is that your the the importance of your values are being echoed in your work. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think there has to be a um, and I don't want us to come across as sounding pretentious uh, or anything like that. You know, I'm capitalist at, at heart. Um, I like to make money. Um, but in the end of the day, if you can do something good with, 
with with at the same time and the numbers still stack you know if you can do something and make the same amount of money which is just going to benefit you or it's going to do a bit of good for everybody and you still make the same money you know you can always do the thing which does a little bit good for everyone um but it's just about you know finding those opportunities and you know also i think you know, for social housing especially there's got to be a bit of government change towards towards doing it um but i i think i think that's the whole point of entrepreneurialism isn't it and it's I think entrepreneurialism is, is and it's why you know the government is so keen on it and the world's so keen on it is generally it is good for society and it's bringing all of us up you know I think there is an issue in this country or in the world even today where you know money now is hereditary my generation and the generations who follow me are, 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 are in are in real trouble trying to make a pound note you know I've got I've got family members who earn decent figures in London you know what you think if you told someone that outside of London what they earn you know, sort of 60, 70 grand a year, maybe even a bit more than that, you think, oh, they're doing really well for themselves. So they're laughing. So after after you pay 30 grand out in rent and you pay your taxes and everything else, they're living, you know, they're not they're not living a glamorous lifestyle. It's not, you know, it's it's really tough now to, to earn a pound note for people um, and to actually get any kind of income. You know, unfortunately, money, it feels like it's hereditary now. But then you've got all the inherent problems of everybody's living forever, which, don't get me wrong, I think... I think everyone would rather have their parents around a long time and keep and not be not have the money. But at the same time, the government are going to come and take it when they pass anyway. So I, I think it's um, I think the redistribution of wealth within our society is certainly a, certainly a challenge. I you know, my father even after all of my background and being raised to do real estate, he tells to me you know, Christ, I had a conversation with him the other day and said if I don't. You know, he goes, if I was to advise you now, I wouldn't, don't think I'd advise you to get into real estate. I'd tell you to go and become a, you know, prestige car salesman or, you know, sell yachts or, um, or even become a professor or something. Don't, don't, <laughs> he's very keen on professor for some weird reason, my father. I don't know, maybe it's because I am a bit, um, you know, because of the dyslexia, maybe it's because I'm a good talker. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a weird world. I, I, his, his, his uh, thing was, I don't envy, envy today's entrepreneurs. So it's interesting, your, your father was sort of advising you against getting into this industry. And yet, did you feel you had a choice about going into property? My father never advised me not to get into the industry before I did it. Uh, he braved me to take over the family business. Um, but as I said, the family business, by the time I was 16, I think my, my first ever job was an estate agency, which they had an interest in. And the first asset I ever sold, and I didn't even know it, uh, it's only when the manager of the agency told me to, to, to pass on the offer when I got home, is the first asset I ever sold was an eight unit, I think it was, development site in a little town called Didcot um, in Oxfordshire. And it turned out it was one of my dad's land bank, which he'd, he'd been selling. Um, so my dad brought me up to, 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 to take over the family business. But by the time I was old enough to do it, there was no family business. Because of 2008, we'd sold the land bank. He was getting to retirement age anyway. Uh, so it was made very clear to me that I had to carve out my own path. And back then, real estate was, was still a really good industry. But I think since then, it's become increasingly competitive uh, and convoluted. Like I said, we're, we're a big, originally... Uh, we're an Irish family, so I've got 23 aunts and uncles directly, and I don't know one of them who isn't either in real estate development, real estate law, uh, or, or construction. We're, we're, we've always been builders and developers, and I, they're, I don't care, they're all getting to sort of retirement ages, but none of the kids have gone into real estate apart from me. All my cousins are either in sort of banking or fitness, um, a few in tech, most of them banking, but um, there's, there's not many people doing real estate left anymore because it's just, it's just not worth it anymore, I think. I think that's the point he was getting 
cling to. It's if I was to advise you now, I'd advise you to go and do something else because it's such a hard slog real estate. Yeah, okay, the returns are fantastic when you get them, but with the cyclical, the fast, the rapid cycling market we have these days caused by geopolitical events and you know currently like things like coronavirus, etc., and Brexit, I think it's just you can't. It's difficult apart from seeing a, a, an overview of where the industry is going. I mean, it's, you know, I've, at the beginning of 2020, I'd forecast what was going to happen in the market for the last 24 months pretty well. And, you know, we were looking to pile into the market in Q, Q, end of Q1 this year in a big way. And a lot of offers against a lot of sites. And, um, and then suddenly you get hit by coronavirus. And, you know, sort of deals you've been working on a while, the guys who are buying them go away, or the vendors just think, oh, they get a payment holiday. It's another spanner in the works i think i think that's more the point he's getting to is it, it's tough being an entrepreneur out there um and also i think for a lot of people they try and force themselves to be one and anybody can be a decent business person and have a decent business but i think the very dynamic of an entrepreneur is just you know it, it's that old cliche isn't it really of people like richard branson is the obvious one who you know they have they have a problem they have an addiction to it you know they they, they love setting up new things and it's on to the new idea all the time but um i think it's unbiased and a bit unfair of society to push people towards being an entrepreneur in certain cases because it's not the be all and end all and it doesn't suit certain people you know if you're not willing to put in the 80 100 hour weeks and to put your your business and your business partners above your friends above your family above your health then it's not something you should you should be looking to do it's set up a business by all means, but the whole thing of being an entrepreneur and riding this, you know, the potential huge successes if you nail it with one of your companies, but also the, the short-term struggles you'll experience. Uh, yeah, it's it's not something, it's not a decision you make, it's a calling almost. And what do you see yourself doing in the future? Uh, I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I, I take it as it, as it comes. I, I, I seem to just... My career has passed a certain way in terms of having ideas uh, of where what the next step will be. So, and I, I think I'm currently at the ultimate step. You know, went from kicking, getting kicked out of school to estate agency because I learned about the basics of real estate, what I can at a young age, and then get into real estate development. Then, before I get into development, I start my own agency because like, well, I've got to get the capital to be a developer. So I've got to build and sell an estate agent. So I did that. Then I did some development, small scale development, some consulting on some. And then it was I can't actually deploy any money in in real estate because it's so tough and there's just not enough deals out there. So how can I find deals faster? Okay, so that's prop tech, data, bring all this data I find myself anyway um, to to the forefront. And then it was well, actually, there's more value in the data in terms of using it to make executing on decisions than there is of subscriptions for me. So I should start a, a real estate and computer technology fund, React fund, which is what the future of real estate will be. Um, so that's our aim is to become a React fund of our real estate and computer technology fund. Um, and that's that's what I'm working on now. I think it's preordained. My mum my had the first licensed real estate fund in the 80s when she was pregnant with me. Um, so she was one of the ones to get a regional license under the British um, business and expansion scheme, the BES scheme. So when my mom was pregnant with me, she was getting driven around by estate agents to buy houses. And my early first five, six years, seven years of my life uh, was going around her funds, properties, managing them. It was a, a PRS portfolio. And then she sold out to a large PLC. Um, so 30 years later, it sort of came full circle. And I started telling about what I'm doing. And she's like, well, of course, it's, and I'm not surprised. This is what your childhood was. <laughs> she's like, it's not surprising you're moving back into this sort of space in terms of long-term holds. 
And that, for me, that's that's what you've got to view real estate as. You can't view it as um, a short-term profit. Of course, you will always you'll make short-term profit, but if you can take a long-term view on real estate, um, then then that's really where the excitement is. It's it's intergenerational or long-term wealth, and it's um, you know if you can't take a long-term view on things, or if you can't afford to hold it, then the question is, should you be building it? And you mentioned about how important it is to work with people, building relationships and, and just having those core people that you're working with. Who, who would you say that are the sort of the core driver or the core people that you work with right now? Right now, the core person, uh, uh, the core person is a guy called Paul, who I've known since I was a, a, a teenager. Uh, so this the second company we've been involved with together. We were both involved in Spress together. He's joined me at Apparel now. Um, so he, but he's very successful in his own right in terms of being an entrepreneur. Um, he's, he had the first original uncompressed audio streaming site, which he built up and sold to a private equity house in the early noughties, then had his own construction firm and he had, um, which did quite a lot of decent projects in London. Uh, and he did like 3d mapping of Ibiza and, um, he's a very successful guy in his own right in his own record label. Problem is we are both the same cognitive behavior type. If you believe in all the Briggs Myers, um, (laughs) So we're both ENTJ commanders, which is quite rare, but um, it does mean we clash sometimes because uh, we're both very direct, but there's a total level of trust between us um, where, and also that, you know, you can say it how it is. Um, so he's, he's who the original man I was speaking to about this. And then I've got the CEO who I hired to run this new company as, or brought on board as a partner, I should say. Um, so he comes from a 30 year of investment banking background as a managing director of investment banks. And the other guy's another fourth generation real estate background. Um, he's worked at some of the big real estate companies as well. And it's, it's an interesting dynamic because you've got, you've got, uh, an Iranian, you've got an Israeli, you've got a northerner and myself from, I like to blame my directness and rudeness on my Irish heritage. Um, <laughs> say it how it is right um but it's an interesting dynamic to have an executive team because it means we're always pretty straight with each other um and we're not afraid to um you know to to speak our minds which having worked with people with different cultures before and different backgrounds before um it really frustrates me when when i'm quite direct and i, I say how it is and there's not there's no like politics it's just this is how it is yes or no what do we think um you know let's debate it out and come up with a better way if, if my way doesn't work but um Working with these guys, there's literally no worry, no worries about that. It's literally we all speak our mind, and we all we all come up with solutions to problems, and it's it's really refreshing. So I, I think partners are a really important part of running a business because you're very very arrogant to think that you can run something yourself um, better than you could with a team around you. Um, but then again, it is you know you do need to scale quite quickly because everybody then needs to have their own remit within the business, their own department, and their own team members, that, so that they can have ownership over their own projects. And then you're, you're sort of it's a cooperative thing rather than a checking on each other thing. So it's it's, it's quite important to scale quite quickly and, and get those teams under people and for everybody to have autonomy, right? You know, I I, I don't tell the guys who are in, in tech guys within my company what to do, and the same way they wouldn't tell me what to do with real estate. And the guy who works on the distress team, he wouldn't tell I wouldn't tell him how to run the distress thing the same way he wouldn't tell me how to run the, the, the social or the, the stress thing. So it was about having the autonomy and having the trust in people to to let them get on with their jobs, finding people who are competent enough to do that, which is which is the hard part. You kiss a lot of frogs before you find your before you find your princess, right? 
Absolutely. And, and I think what you've covered today has been really useful. There's been some really key messages about around due diligence, around trust, around sort of future proofing, essentially, uh, what it is you're going to be doing. Uh, and also innovation. I, I think I've heard a lot of innovation and problem solving discussion in this talk. So uh, thank you for all of those key points. Is there a particular message that you would like to pass on to the audience, Toby? Yeah, I mean, I can. So this is the how and the why um, and the when, right? So this is focusing on entrepreneurialism. So I'll, I'll, my 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 takeaway from this will be, is don't force yourself to be an entrepreneur. Uh, firstly, it's not set out for everybody. There's nothing to say you can't have a business, but you know, this whole title of being an entrepreneur, or feeling like you have to move on to the next thing, you know, maybe you just want a business that actually provides you a decent income and a decent lifestyle. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, it's just different strokes for different folks. But the key three things, according to Harvard research, in terms of what makes a successful entrepreneur is number one, dyslexia. Number two, if you have entrepreneurial parents who have brought you up around entrepreneurialism. And three is personal adversity or tragedy. If you've suffered one of those, all three things of those, statistically, you're much more likely to be a successful founder of a business. And I just like to say principally about adversity, you know, we all get knocked, knocked down. We all mess up sometimes. And, you know, everybody has to have the chance to, 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 to turn that around and just keep on plodding. The most important thing you can have is resilience. If you don't have resilience, you're going to struggle. So I, I think that's my biggest takeaway from today. Don't force yourself to be something you're not and be resilient and never be afraid to keep on getting back up and keep on fighting the good fight. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star iTunes review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of the inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.